Father in heaven again, you know, life is a question to us and sometimes there's a lot of things that we just don't understand and I just pray that you would help our minds to be clear and you would help us to to understand your purposes and that we would be willing to submit our lives to your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. What I need to kind of finish up here because we're really going to have to cover a lot of ground tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is what usually happens when you get it, you get into this and you know, I hope it's beneficial to you. Uh, we'll try to get we'll try to get through um, all the material here. We might have to abbreviate some of the the physics part of it. We can get through pretty easy. The biology part we can we can generalize a little bit more. Um, so I didn't put the numbers up there, but what you're shooting for is a 60 70 percent calcium, 10 to 20 percent magnesium. It all depends on how big the bucket is. That tells you what the characteristics of that soil are. Is where you're going to move that range in those um, potassium two to seven percent, sodium one to three percent, iron about three hundred parts per million, manganese about uh, two hundred parts per million, copper five to ten parts per million. I prefer ten. Uh, I, I grow a lot of berries, and so uh, I see the difference when you get that copper level up there. You're not dealing with the fungal issues that they deal with so much on berries, and then zinc, which we didn't get to zinc. This will be a transition into the anions that we'll try to cover here in this session. Um, zinc is tied. You know, one of the things is that all of these elements interact with each other. And some interact as synergists with the, like iron and manganese interact with each other and they influence each other. And you never want manganese to be higher than iron because when it goes into the plant, it'll ox the manganese will oxidize the iron. Actually, uh, I, I won't deviate on this, but I'll drop this little blurb in here. Mad cow disease is related to excessive manganese levels and deficiency in copper and zinc. And a lot of the a lot of the things like the organophosphate fertile uh, pesticides um, aggravate it. And so that's why you'll see that problem related but it's it's more than just organophosphates. It's it's a mineral imbalance and deficiency on it. Copper and zinc interact with each other. They're synergists. And so if you overload one in relation to the other so, so we have about, in some cases, people will say about half as much manganese as iron. Uh, Two-thirds of, of iron is, is, I think, better. Um, and copper, you generally want about half as much copper as you do zinc. But now this is where it gets a little tricky because zinc is related, it interacts with phosphorus. Now we're now over to the anions. And so you have to figure how much zinc you need based on how much phosphorus you have and as the phosphorus level goes up you need to change the zinc levels the highest level you know, the minimum that you would want is six parts per million the highest level that is ever recommended is 20 i i have soils that have 60 parts per million zinc in them <laughs> not not me personally but i have farms that have uh, 60 parts per million zinc in them way beyond what they need to be now look stuff doesn't stop growing it's just that you don't you're not getting the optimum benefit from from those situations because you have something that's exaggerated or excessive. So zinc, the rule of thumb that you'll see in the ideal soil is it should be, um, I think it's one-tenth of phosphorus. And so as far as quantity, so pounds, pounds compared to pounds, and they, they represented as parts per million on that test, but it's multiplied times two, and you got the pounds are divided by two to get parts per million. So let's say, for, you know, optimum levels of uh, phosphorus 
are generally five to 750 pounds, as P2O5. Now that's phosphate, not elemental phosphorus. This is where stuff gets kind of tricky and people get confused is because somewhere along the line, the fertilizer industry, the industry decided to represent phosphorus as, as phosphate. So if you go and you get buy fertilizer and you know there's three numbers on the bag, the N, P, and K, well, the P in the middle, which is phosphorus, is actually represented as phosphate, which is a compound. If you want to know how much phosphorus there actually is, you have to multiply that by 0.44 because it's only 44% actual phosphorus. Um, and so if you're going to use the the, the the one tenth or one to ten relationship between zinc and, and phosphorus, you have to move it to phosphor actual phosphorus. But if you're if you're most labs actually measure it as, as phosphate, and so they're going to represent it as phosphate. And the numbers you want is, is about 500 to 750 pounds of phosphate on on the on the soil analysis. And if you have those numbers, you want to be at about 20 on zinc. And there's a scale that goes down from there. You can do the one to ten. Now, let's let, let's look at what aster represents in the so the, the one to ten ratio. If I did the let, let's say you had 500 pounds and you did the 0.44, you'd have 220 pounds of actual phosphorus. If it was represented on the analysis as 500, you'd have 220 pounds of actual phosphorus. One tenth of that is what? You're already you're already over the maximum recommended limit of, of 20. The problem here is with when you use ratios like that, there is a threshold beyond which you, you got to be really careful going above it on some of these things. And so if you had 750, which is the high end of excellent uh, on the phosphorus, your zinc levels are really going to be too high. The, pro the problem is when you get into higher CEC soils, they may be able to be higher than that. The problem is that there's not a lot of there's not a lot of data on that because most growers with those high CEC soils can't afford to go anywhere near the levels that they should. They just try to put sufficiency levels on to get their crops and everything, but they can't, you know, you're, you're talking about sometimes in the cations, you're talking thousands of pounds and, um, and so it's, uh, it's a lot of money compared to what they get paid, the, the return on it. So a lot of people won't bother to do that. I, I would be interested in taking, which I may do, if Robert's still in here. He's got a 30 CEC soil, and we're going to try to push it to the optimum levels on on everything on that, and we're going to see what happens. Because there there's not a lot of people. I was sharing with somebody up here. The people that are actually applying this model is probably less than, is a fraction of 1%. So if you go out there and you actually do this, you're going to be in a very small crowd, but you'll be in a really good one. <laughs> and you'll be really pleased with, with what happens. But, you know, that's the reality with anything related to the truth, is the truth is not a very popular thing. But where it's applied, it, it has tremendous success. And so, so the ratio part of the 1 to 10, that's what he represents in there, but you can... You know, the higher you go in it, then when you get into those trace elements, you start pushing into levels, which nobody's really sure. It might be fine to go up to that level, but based on what's understood, um, it's not recommended that you go above 20. So there's a relationship between those two that you have to kind of take into consideration. So whenever I have to calculate that, 
I have to look at what the phosphate levels are. And now, if the zinc levels are high, I may have to take the phosphate levels up higher than they maybe they would necessarily have to have. They might be able to stay at 500 pounds and be fine, but I'll have to take it up to 750. But I can't. I don't comfortably feel like that I can go above that number because, again, then phosphorus starts interfering with other things. It'll interfere with copper. It'll interfere with some of the other anions, the sulfur, the boron, and those things. It'll start suppressing those. And so some of this is, like I said, we're talking about the balance of the whole thing. Balance is more important than getting it all the way to the optimum levels. And so if you're only halfway there, you want to be balanced halfway there. You don't want to be get, get now the exceptions on your cations. You can get your cations balanced before you have some other stuff. Your major ones you can get them up to their optimum levels and not quite have the others there, just because of economics. But you you really want to maintain balance as you're as you're going up. So phosphate levels on now again. This is the because I've been asked about um, using a different another lab's numbers to try and to calculate these things and it's, it's like I shared before is different labs use different model soils to calibrate their machines they use different concentrations of extracts they use different shaking times and so like I had shared is that you know 68 on an Albrecht on the actual Albrecht model might wind up at another lab at 64 percent or 70 percent so you know you have some consultants say this should be 70 percent it's because of the lab they're using that it's that the numbers should be that. So so I don't know how to correlate those numbers safely, and I don't want to give you information because I shared that when you get like for example with calcium, when you get within the last two to three percentage points of optimum levels, you have major changes in the soil, major changes for the better. And so if if you're if, the lab numbers that you're using, if it should be 64 and I'm doing it at 68, I have you off by four percentage points. You're never gonna you're never gonna see what really happens when you get to those numbers. And so when I'm the numbers I'm sharing with you is based on the, it, what Albrecht actually did, because a, a lot of things are called cation exchange and they're called the Albrecht system, but they've been modified so that it's more economical to do the lab analysis or you know various things or people had different ideas about the way things should be done and i'm not here to say that they they don't work that way they may work just fine but i i, I understand it the way that i understand it here so let's let's look at the other anions real quick here to try to get that done at least the other anions are of course nitrogen now i take that back nitrogen can be either one nitrogen can be in the form of nitrate which is an anion compound and it can be in the form of ammonium or ammonia and it's uh that's actually a cation a plus charge nutrient and nitrate nitrogen is actually utilized for vegetative growth for the growth of the plant ammonium nitrogen is actually what causes the plant helps the plant to reproduce and so the plant the plants need both of them and here's the thing where if you put all your fertilizer on as nitrate as a nitrate nitrogen first of all it's highly soluble and there's nowhere for it to hold remember i said the, the exchange sites hold positively charged elements and nitrate is a negatively charged element so it's not going to be held anywhere and so if you have water move through the soil it's going to leach out and go to the midwest and you'll see how much nitrate is leached out where all the ground groundwater is totally contaminated with nitrate whereas ammonium nitrogen which is a plus charge 
is actually a cation and it actually attached to the colloids. You can attach it to the colloids. And so if you're using ammonium-based source of, of fertile nitrogen, um, it, it'll actually stay in the soil a whole lot longer until the biology in the soil converts it to nitrate. And then you better have somewhere to go. You want that biology working in synergy with that plant and the colloids and everything so that when it's being converted, it's moving, it's being built into proteins and it's moving into the plant. Otherwise, it's going, it's going with the groundwater. So, and nitrogen, of course, I'll, I'll try to go through these after I get them all done. Is what, are these, what do these nutritional elements actually do? So I'll try to do these as I'm going along. Nitrogen is actually vegetative growth in a plant. Of course, the ammonium nitrogen helps in the reproductive growth of the plant. And it's, it's involved in photosynthesis. The, there's, it depends on what source you, you look at. I could list off a, a list this long of what each one of these things do. The important thing to understand is that each one of them has a vital role in the health and, and fruitfulness of that plant. And you want them there in a balanced way. Um, we talked about phosphate. Phosphate is, is a, is facilitates energy transfer. And so it, it, it's also um, required in, in the, the conversion of a lot of, com a lot of materials into complex compounds. It takes the energy that phosphate provides to build more complex compounds. It's also uh, in reproductive growth as well. And uh, then the next sulfur, I want to show you the confusion here with sulfur. Sulfur, there's a lot of different ideas. Now, uh, Aster in his book, The Ideal Soil, says that you can, it should be half of phosphorus. So what if you have five pounds, 500 pounds? Well, he says up to, you can go up to, you can go up to 600 pounds of sulfur in the soil. Well, I wouldn't want any more, I wouldn't. The highest that, that I've seen is really safe, unless you have things to get out of the soil. Sulfur is the element that will remove cations that are in excess out of the soil. If you don't have anything that needs to be removed from the soil, then you only want to put on what's necessary to maintain the optimum levels. Um, and the optimum levels are, really ranges anywhere from 50 parts per million to 100 parts per million as, as actual sulfur, which would give you 100 to 200 pounds of, of uh, sulfur in the soil. Now, if you're growing brassicas or alliums, they use a lot of sulfur. And if you want the best uh, broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage or the best onions and garlic and those type of things, you want to be sure you have the optimum levels of, of sulfur in the soil. But sulfur is, is used... Uh, and there are certain proteins, amino acids, that uh, require sulfur to be built. And sulfur is actually used. Now, it's called a secondary element. And phosphate, that you represented as phosphate, is called a primary element. But when you compare apples to apples, it takes as much sulfur to grow a crop as it does phosphorus in most cases. And if you're growing vegetables, it, grows, it takes more sulfur sometimes than it does phosphorus. But they'll represent it as phosphate, the compound, and sulfur, the element, and say, well, look how much more is required of phosphate than it is sulfur. But if you convert sulfur to sulfate and you compare apples to apples, it's almost the same quantity. But they call it a secondary element. And, and phosphate, phosphorus has a triple, a triple negative charge, and it locks up to something in the soil quickly. And it's pretty stable in the soil. It's hard to keep it available, actually, except in a good biologically active soil. Um, sulfur, on the other hand, leaches out really easy. Now here, I want to illustrate one of the man-made solutions that is a total disaster. You've heard of acid rain, right? And, and we're concerned about the sulfur 
sulfur compounds coming from acid rain. So they've removed sulfur from the smokestacks and the coal plants. They've removed it from the fuels. And in the fertilizers, they've, they've removed it out. They've processed it out of the fertilizers and everything. They take it about every, everything. So guess what situation we have now? Almost all soils are severely deficient in sulfur. Almost all soils are severely deficient in sulfur. Because the idea is that we, you don't need that much. And what, what happened is growers got used to what they were naturally getting with rainfall and the exhaust from cars. And, and there were fertilizers like superphosphate, which they would react gypsum with um, rock phosphate, or I'm sorry, sulfuric acid with, with rock phosphate. And they would get um, super, what was called superphosphate, but it had a high level of, of sulfur in it. And uh, people used to use that, and they get sulfur incidentally. They didn't really think about it, that they were getting sulfur with the phosphorus in the super, what they called superphosphate. They now use triple superphosphate, which they react the, phos the superphosphate with phosphoric acid, and they get the sulfur out of it, and they concentrate the, pho the phosphorus in the triple superphosphate. So that's gone um, out, of the, out of the fertilizers. But a lot of growers, you know, the growers in this country all have gray hair, most of them. You know, I think the average age of, of most farmers is up in the 60s now. And so there's no young people to take their place. Nobody wants to do it. And uh, so that's a crisis coming down the road, too. But I'll, I'll give you an illustration of how you can get confusion. They did a they did an uh, evaluation of whether wheat needed sulfur. And so the different states that grew it, Kansas, of course, is a big state that grows wheat. Nebraska grows some wheat, and, and I can't, it's the Colorado grows wheat. And so these states all they all evaluated whether sulfur was needed at their, their land-grant universities, at their plots and everything. They, they did it, and everybody came to the conclusion that it improved the yields and the quality of the, of the wheat using sulfur, except Kansas. Kansas said, well, it didn't make any difference in Kansas. Well, how can crossing a border just... <laughs> All of a sudden, it doesn't make any difference. So um, an agronomist, uh, agronomist went out to try to evaluate, well, what's the deal with that and everything? And so the, the farm manager of the, the university's research farm was out walking with this guy. You know, He was asking him questions and everything. He said, and the farm manager leaned over and said, I want to tell you a secret. When everybody uses that triple super stuff, I use superphosphate instead. And I get much better results. Well, what was he doing? He was putting, he was getting sulfur out of the the superphosphate, and so he he was totally, he got the benefit from it. He didn't realize he was putting it on. But I tell you, there's there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there that you experience like that. So anyway, vegetables use a, a vegetables use a, a lot higher level of sulfur than just growing field crops, and so um, depending on your CEC again, you're going to want a range of fifty. And, and again, on this model, you want, to, you want a range of between 50 and 100 parts per million sulfur if you don't have anything else that needs to be removed from the soil. Because sulfur, if you have excess cations, sulfur will remove it from the soil. And so you'll, and it takes two pounds of sulfur to remove every one pound of calcium or magnesium. It takes one pound to move, remove every pound of potassium or sodium that you have in excess from the soil. And so if you need to remove those, you may put ex, you know, extra sulfur on. To um, just another side thing about sulfur too, the sulfate compounds, like say for example from uh, calcium sulfate or potassium sulfate, 
they will not neutralize bicarbonate because they don't form an acid. They don't form the sulfuric acid in the process. Now, the sulfuric acid is hard on biology, but it lasts for a brief period of time. And actually, if you need the sulfur, your biology will come back with a roar after it gets the sulfur broken down. If you put a sulfate form on, it will not neutralize bicarbonate in the soil. And bicarbonate can tie up your cations and all kinds of bad things to it. Uh, to cause a problem for you. So, yeah, anything in the sulfate form is already converted, so it's not going to go through the sulfuric at the acid state, and so it's already in the sulfate form. Just briefly, it would briefly it would briefly suppress the biology because of the the acidity of the sulfuric acid. But once it converts into the sulfate, then now this is if look if you need the sulfur and you can't use any of the other sulfates and elemental sulfur is what you want to put on. Because even though you might have a, a dip briefly, and I'm talking briefly, it's just until it integrates into the soil, and then the biology will come up even higher and more effective than it was before. So it's not going to kill it off. It's, um, it's just going to suppress it for a brief period of time because of the impact. But, you know, anytime we put fertilizers on, I don't care if, if they're natural fertilizers or conventional fertilizers, um, you're disrupting the equilibrium in the soil, and you're going to disrupt the biology. But your goal is complete and balanced fertility, and when you get that complete and balanced fertility, you won't even notice. It'll be like a blip on the screen compared to the, the increased vigor of the biology and, the, and the, the diversity of the biology in your soil as a result of having that complete fertility available to it. Did you? I was just going to just hurts at the Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the illustration that... <clears throat> the illustration that Sean is sharing is, is the illustration of pruning a plant. You know, when you prune a tree, you're preparing it to be more fruitful. And so when you, when you put that material on, it may prune the biology in the soil a little bit. But in the long run, you're going to be more fruitful. You're going to be more productive because you did that. And so I don't know how you are, but, you know, when it, just like thinning a fruit off a tree. How many people, when they go out there, say, oh, I can't do that. I want all that fruit in there. But you don't. But what you don't realize is if you thin the fruit, you're not going to have any less volume of fruit. You're just going to have bigger fruit. You, so you're going to have a whole bunch of little fruit. You can have you know, less but bigger fruit on the tree. You're just trying to, you're trying to balance the capacity of the tree to do the fruit. So some of the things we have to do are, are painful to us sometimes. But if they're intelligently applied, you know, it's necessary. It's necessary for us to do those things. Remember, again... The earth is deformed, just like we're deformed. And God's tried to reform his image. And sometimes that's a painful process. And so, but the pain only lasts for a while. And then the, and the, the healing that comes from that is, it, it, we don't remember the, the pain or the difficulty that we had to go through to, to, deal, to deal with that because of the blessings that we received from it. So <clears throat> there's, a, there's a couple of um, a, a soil test. Usually on a soil test, you can have nitrogen analyzed. I never have it analyzed because it's a very nitrogen is so volatile in the soil that unless you overnight it to the lab, you have to do all these procedures and overnight it to the lab in order for them to give you an accurate number. And by the time you get that number, it's changed in the soil. So... What, what they'll put on an analysis is they'll put an estimated nitrogen release or an ENR. And what they're doing is they're, they're taking the organic matter content in the soil 
And the organic matter in the soil has a certain nitrogen content in it. And over time, over a period of time, it'll a certain percentage of that will break down. And there's a formula they use to calculate that. Um, and so they'll put an estimated nitrogen release. So, for example, if you had 2% humus content, what is it, about 60? I think it's about 60 pounds of nitrogen you're going to get from from that humus throughout that growing that uh, season. And so they'll, they'll put that on there. So you can expect 60 pounds to be available from that. So they'll put that on there if you want the nitrogen analysis. I never have it done. It's more complicated. And, and I just look at how, how am I going to structure this, construct this soil so that nitrogen availability is at its maximum. If you're, if you're an organic grower and you're using compost and those type of things for your nitrogen source, um, too many times organic growers are getting their chemistry all out of whack because they're using that for nitrogen. What you need to do is you need to get to the place where you're getting natural nitrogen cycling, nitrogen fixation out of the air by the, the, the bacteria and the, and the algae and those things in the soil. Now, there's two re- trace elements we're going to have to talk about in order for you to be able to do that. But, yeah, um, there are growers doing it. Yeah. You can, you can apply. Look, I shared before that plants will dump their photosynthates. They're, they'll, they'll exude them out the roots. And what they're doing is they're trying to attract the, the, the biology in the soil that will best fit their needs. And so they're, they're, trading, they're trading energy compounds into the soil. They do the same thing off the leaves, too. And if the, and if the, the nitrogen-fixing organisms are there, what they do is, in, in exchange for the energy compounds, they fix nitrogen. But it requires, there's two things that are not routinely tested on a soil test, and that's cobalt and molybdenum. If you don't have cobalt and molybdenum in the soil, that's not going to work well. Now, again, you have to have, you, you'll have to evaluate, you know, how safe you are into doing that based on what this overall picture looks like. But um, you for sure have, if you really want to do that, you have to have the adequate levels of cobalt and molybdenum in the soil because molybdenum is essential f- for the nitrogen fixers to fix the nitrogen. And and cobalt is also essential for those for those organisms, and well, the legumes have a different group of bacteria that actually fix nitrogen with them. So, it's you know if you're going to, you want to fix nitrogen with them, then you have to have the rhizobium bacteria in the, to do that. Again, you want the chemistry so that that plant that plant's going to dump a lot of its energy into the ground because it's going to take that biology and that biology is going to build all those compounds it needs for it and give it back to them. Uh, give it back to the plant. And that's how you want it to go into the plant. You want it, you don't want it to go into soluble f- salts because when soluble salts go into the plant, they pull water into the plant in order to dilute the salt content. And if it's incomplete, if it's not built into co- complex compounds yet, you start attracting diseases and, and insects and everything else is a consequence of that. So there are inoculants. You can talk to Bob Jorgensen. He has one of the the types of inoculants that you can inoculate both the, the plant and the soil with some of those free living nitrogen fixers. But you, you know, I wouldn't say not to, not to use legumes to help build nitrogen levels in the soil. That's a good way of, of building nitrogen levels. Um, but you, there are growers that are using just the natural nitrogen cycling to provide all their nitrogen. Yeah, well, that's something that all growers, organic otherwise, should be able to get to that place where they're getting all their nitrogen out of the air. The biology should be doing that work for them and providing for them. It's, excuse me, it saves you all that money too. And it also, particularly for organic growers, 
where that's a major source for their nitrogen. They're not necessarily looking for the rest of the things in there, but they're, it's nitrogen that they're looking for. Um, it gives you the ability, if you're putting that on, I shared it earlier that there's two big growers out in California, big certified organic growers who kept pouring on the compost and pouring on the compost because they needed it for the night. They, they, they were using it for other things, but it was primarily nitrogen. And they got to the point where their potassium and phosphate levels were too high. And, and the vegetative crops like broccoli, lettuce, spinach, all of it became bitter because those levels were too high and they, they couldn't sell their crop because of the bitterness that came into it. But what were their alternatives? I mean, and so look, if you want to be veganic, you know, most of your other protein, your protein meal, a lot of your protein meals that are probably going to be ones that you're not going to have to have the potassium and the phosphate in are going to be uh, animal protein meals, feather meal, that type of thing. And so most of the, most of the plant-based meals have the, uh, some content of those in them. And depending on how, where you are with those is a matter of, you know, how much of that can you afford to, to utilize. But my, my thing is why spend the money on it? If you can get the, and you don't have to necessarily, once you get it endemic in the system, then you're not going to have to inoculate constantly. But it, it doesn't work effectively until you get this balance. You, you can manage with foliars and stuff like that. You use molasses and compost teas and things like that to help provide the, the, uh, the photosynthase, the, the, the carbon compounds that they need as energy sources to help them along. Um, but the goal is to get that system working and let it work for you. Instead of paying for everything under the sun to try to get a growing system working, you, you, you can't afford to operate that way. Too much of your money, it's like I was sharing about the dairy who you know, saved $800,000 on vet bills and drugs. Um, you just can't afford to spend all your money, give all your money to everybody else to try to be productive. And so whatever, whatever, whatever God provided for that system to function, fully function, we want to benefit from. They can just, they, they get in because they're soluble. And if you put them in a concentration at the root, they're going to kind of they're going to kind of force feed them way, their way in. This is one of the downsides to hydroponics and aeroponics and those type of things where you're you're almost force feeding the plant. You're forcing it to take the mix that you're giving it. Where whereas you don't know plants change what their needs are from day to day and from one part of the season to the other. And so the plant knows what it needs and it'll put exudates out geared to draw in what it needs or to have the biology build what it needs and provide it to it. But when you when you put soluble fertilizers on, you're pretty much telling the plant this is what you're getting, like it or not. Well, if it's at a high if it's at a high enough concentration in the root zone, it will it'll ha it'll almost have to. And then what it will do as a result of that is the salt concentration is too high in the tissue, and so it's going to pull in water to dilute down that and those those free nutrients. It's like eating white flour. You know, it's a simple compound, and simple organisms are attracted to simple compounds. They can't consume complex compounds. And this is where you eliminate the disease and pest pressure. When the complexity of the plant gets to a certain level, they can't eat on it anymore. It'll kill them. They can't eat it because it's too complex. It'll turn to alcohol in their system, and they'll die. I've seen this happen with Colorado potato beetles out, in, uh, out of my place in Colorado. When we got the chemistry to a certain point, I saw potato beetles come in and land on the plants, and then I never saw them again. 
It just never came back. I mean, they're not dumb. And so, they're, you know, if you grow berries, like raspberries, and they have a big problem with what they call a spotted wing. I don't spend a lot of time on these particular problems because I spend my time on, on the solution and everything. But, you know, with, I grow berries, and so blackberries and raspberries, they have a big problem now with the spotted wing drosophila. It's coming in, it's laying its eggs in the fruit, and it's ruining the fruit when the eggs hatch, and you got all these little worms in it, and they just turns it to mush. And, you know, and, it, and they, could, they could harvest it, and have it at the market, and somebody goes and pick it. Up, they just look good, and they pick it up, and they start eating, and discover all these worms in the in the in the fruit. Well, what are they attracted to? The female is attracted to free nitrate. They need nitrogen for the young to feed on, in order to grow. And so, when the when the female is flying around, they can smell it. Now, it may not be in an olfactory sense. It might be in a, in a, in a frequency sense where the, the plant is giving off certain frequencies because of the chemistry, but they can smell it. And guess what? She goes and she lays her eggs there because she knows that there will be nitrogen, a nitrogen source for those uh, when they hatch, for the eggs when they hatch to grow on and everything. What if it's not there? Is the, the female going to land there and lay its eggs? And so the solution is not, I mean, the solution, they're coming up with all these more pesticides that they can spray on there to try to kill this thing and everything, but they're not changing the conditions that's causing it to come and, and lay its eggs there. So that's why I say when you raise the complexity of the plant, you eliminate the pressure from these things because they're just not going to feed on it anymore. They can't, and they're not going to want to. So... Um, there's, I, I want to cover a couple. The, one of the micro, uh, a, a couple of the micro anions, boron. Just real quick here, because it's fine. We need to quit. Boron is essential for keeping calcium mobile. You'll, you'll, calcium is the king of the elements. It's required to move nutrients into the plant. It's required to move them around the plant. It's built into a lot of things. Um, it, it plays a, a lot of roles. It actually affects the structure of the soil, and all, there's a lot of things that it does. Right? Yeah, boron. See, in other words, it plays the role. It plays a lot of roles, but but it, it's key. A lot of times, you'll hear um, ecoag consultants and everything, or people's presenting. They'll say that um, calcium is the truck, but boron's the driver, and it, it's essential to have boron available to keep calcium mobile, and. Uh, You'll see a lot of times, another thing, when I was talking earlier about, you know, there are symptoms on, a, you know, there are things that you can look at to get an idea of what's going on. Some of these elements are mobile in the plant. In other words, they can move, they can translocate in the plant. So they're not tied up in, in part of the plant. So, for example, uh, potassium can move. It's not fixed in the plant, so it can move. And so when you see deficiency symptoms, it's going to be on the older part of the plant. Calcium doesn't move in the plant. It's fixed into the plant, and so when it when it's fixed, you're going to see the symptoms on the top of the plant if you're deficient in it because it's going to stop growing on the top of the plant. If you're deficient, usually you'll see the symptoms of blossom end rot. Sometimes you'll think it's calcium, but it may be boron. Have you ever had? You ever bought a watermelon? It's, it's used in the translocation of sugars too, and the building of sugars into into the fruit. And so, have you ever got a um, or starches? Have you ever got a watermelon and it's split open in the middle? That's boron deficiency. Or you've got potatoes and they have the hollow spot in the middle of them. Or black rot in the middle of beets. 
Those are all, or if you get corn and it doesn't fill out to the tip, it, the pollen wasn't, there wasn't sufficient boron to fill, a, fill it out to the tip. And so, boron, now Asterisk says it's related to one one thousandth of the calcium, but one to, you know, about one and a half to two parts per million is what you need. You can go as high as four. If you have really high calcium levels, I think that you could go as high as four parts per million and you'd be just fine. Um, I don't I don't go on the ratio thing because there's so much variability. There can be so much variability in how much calcium you have in the soil. So I, I try to maintain if the low CDC soil is a low end, one and a half parts per million. Um, but it, it can go up as high as four. But staying between one and a half and two is probably the, the safest thing to do. Boron is also an anion. It's highly soluble, and you lose it. Sulfur and boron are the two biggest things you got to manage on a regular basis. The best way to manage them is to make sure you keep them there on a regular basis and get good storage in the humus in the soil because the anions are stored in the humus in the soil, the humus structures in the soil. And so over time, and now another thing with humus formation, the biology in the soil is a primary source of, of humus development. It's not the roots of the plant. It's not the plants themselves. It's actually the, bio, the generations of biology in the soil that will increase your humus content the quickest. It'll sequester the most carbon, and it'll build the highest humus levels. Uh, is the bio is the biology in the soil, not the not the plant roots, but the microbes in the soil. Um, well, yeah, the plants dumping it. Remember, I said the plants dumping those photosynthesis, the carbon. They're fixing the carbon. And, you know, into energy compounds and dumping it out their roots as exudates. And then the, the microbes are taking that and they're feeding on it and multiplying generations, multiple multiple generations, and that builds your humus content much faster. Did you ever, uh, and I, I want to, uh, well, yeah, we touched it on, on, on the cobalt and molybdenum thing. If you want natural nitrogen fixation, you got to have them. They're not routinely done on a soil test. I recommend people do it at least once so they know for sure whether they have them or not. You should really do it at least once so you know. Because if you don't have them, listen, cobalt, another one for cobalt is B12. Uh, cyanobacteria produce B12 from uh, cobalt as a center molecule in B12. Now, a lot of people say, you know, if you're a vegan, oh, you got to take a B12 supplement. But if you have adequate cobalt in the soil, the biology in the soil, 80, more than 80% of the biology in the soil requires B12. They require cobalt so that they can... Built, produce B12. And what the plant does, along with a whole lot of other compounds, what the plant does, and I'm careful in saying this, I'm going to give a, I'm a caveat with this, um, is that the B12 is taken up into the plant. Or it can be on the surface of the plant and everything. And you can get adequate B12 out of the soil if you have the right conditions. Now, I, I say that as a caution because I don't want anybody going out of here and say, oh, Whitmar said you didn't have to take B12 supplements or anything like that there are conditions that need to be met but um, we can actually generate some b12 in our gut you know why we don't because th there's two reasons one there's no cobalt and the other one is we eat so many foods with preservatives in it that it keeps the the, the, the soil the biology in your gut totally suppressed or killed off and so you got if you if you eliminate those two things the way I look at things is God said this is the way it should be. And if we say, well, it can't be that way, I need to know why. 
I need to know that we ought to have it the way God said to have it, unless we have a really good reason not to. And so a lot of people argue, you say you can't be a vegan unless you take some kind of supplement, either eat some kind of dairy product or some kind of animal product or or, um, supplement. Yeah, cobalt molybdenum. Yeah, cobalt is a is a cation, a positively charged uh, element, and molybdenum is an anion, but it it stays in the soil. If you've got it there, it stays in the soil. And it, they're both of them. You have to be very careful in applying them. These are a very limited amount that you can apply at any one time. Um, Yeah, I mean, if I'm working with a person who's demonstrate reasonable intelligence about applying things, now I say that, and you may sound that sounds ridiculous. Well, surely I'd do that. You would be surprised what people will do with what you tell them. I shared the one about the copper, but people will people will do all you know, interpret things all kinds of ways and go out and do things, and then you know you just don't want to do harm to anybody or anything. And so you have to be careful the way you communicate things. So yes, on some of these things you can, you know, boron's another one of those, I didn't say that, that has to be limited how much you apply at one time. Because if you get more than a certain amount, they used to, let's put it this way, they used to use boron as a weed killer. Because it'll kill everything. Everything will come back. Because eventually it integrates into the soil, it's soluble, and so it leaches and stuff, and stuff will come back. But they used to use it as a weed killer. They, they use it on treated wood. They did. I don't know if they're using it anymore. They've gone to the neonicotinoids to treat lumber now. But they used to use boron as a, as a treatment to lumber because it, it would protect them from insect damage and everything. So it can be, some of these things can be toxic if they're not in balance and, and caref, you know, carefully managed. So you have to be intelligent about what you're doing with them. So. I think what I'll do is I'm going to end because we're already after 5 o'clock. If anybody else has any questions they want to ask, I might be happy to, to try to answer them. But I think we better quit so that people can get to whatever they need to if they need to. So let's pray. Father in heaven, our desire is to be complete in you, to receive your righteousness, to receive your, receive your holiness. Not just the we can glory it in ourselves, but that we can testify to the world of who you are. And if there's anything that we can do to restore your image in our lives, then we desire to do that. And we just pray that you would give us the wisdom and the willingness to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.